The uh, text today is Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. And uh, anybody that wants to, I'll give you a moment to look that up. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. Dean's going to bring us our message. We put him to bed with nails. Subtitle today, Will Your Chair Be Empty One Day Soon Up Above? It's all based on the last sermons of Jesus. In Revelation 19, we have the words from Jesus about an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the New Jerusalem. We all have a seat there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a chair with our name on it. And I would ask you this morning to ponder this question, will your chair be empty? We will focus in today on the last sermon of Jesus, our Lord. He gave this sermon while hanging on the cross with his flesh being torn. His hands and feet were bleeding. He was sitting on a sharp spear for a seat. And a crown of thorns was placed down on his head. The seven sayings from the cross that Jesus uttered, these are the Redeemer's sermon to mankind before he died. You and I put our Lord to sleep on that cross. We tucked in his hands and feet with nails. We gave him a pillow of thorns. A deathbed is a solemn sight, even more so if it is someone we love or we've been responsible for their death. The seven sayings from our Lord are a little little Bible in miniature. These sayings were addressed to the friends and enemies around the cross, but also to the cosmic audience in the heaven above and on the earth. The first three sayings were dedicated to the needs of others for all time. And then the scriptures tell us that darkness descended for three hours. This was followed by the last four sayings, the first of which dissipated the darkness and ushered in the sunshine again. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. As soon as the blood began to flow, our Lord uttered the first words of his final sermon before he died. Father, forgive them. How different our human response would be in the same situation. Among the taunting and the mocking, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. Above all that we need in our life is the need for forgiveness. Glasses are of no value if we are blind. Shoes of no value if we cannot walk. So it is only when sin's guilt is removed as we look at the cross that the power of sin is broken. At the very height of his agony, compassion and forgiveness are on his mind. On that cross, you and I were on his mind. The Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. Paul was right. We are complete in him, and there is now therefore no condemnation, Romans 8.1. Truly, I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise. 
This second sermon occurred as the hours passed and the Jesus was hanging there between heaven and earth. This saying shows how generously Jesus' salvation is given. Christ's forgiveness, however, is only for those who ask for it and repent. It is not given to those who reject him. This is typified in the two thieves. They have given their lives to hurt people. Probably countless people have been injured by their activities. They both cursed Christ at first. It is unknown and what first started the spark in that one thief. The idea that this was the king of heaven that was right next to him. Perhaps the small Bible above the head of Christ which said this is the king of the Jews. Perhaps the first words from Christ triggered his mind. Father forgive them. Perhaps he had been raised in a home where his parents tried to teach him about God. And he had rejected God. The same sunshine that brings forth peaches from a peach tree shines in vain on a black rock. The one thief continued to curse and was sent out into outer darkness. But the other thief's heart was melting. Something was happening. The thief on the right suddenly rebuked his fellow thief by saying, This man hath done nothing amiss. He used the only part of his body he had left to preach. And this was his only sermon. He used his tongue. In so doing, he realized that he reversed the judgment of Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and the Sanhedrin. The mob of mocking people from his lofty perch beside Christ, he calls Jesus Lord and Master of heaven and earth. For all his life, this thief had been exposed to law, but it did not reform him. When he saw beside him love incarnate, his heart was melted. No sinner has ever given, was ever given more assurance of salvation. He did not ask to be taken down from the cross. He was focused on eternity as he was dying in agony. A most unlikely candidate for God's eternal kingdom. This is the greatest biblical illustration of justification by faith. This man was helpless and one of the worst of sinners, but he was promised eternity in the heavenly country. What amazing grace is this. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. John next describes the next saying of Jesus in John 19 in these words. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then he saith to his disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. The pain of watching Jesus die had been indescribable to his friends, but to his mother who was watching, words cannot describe her pain. She had raised Jesus from a baby. She had trained and watched him through the teenage years and the perfection that he exhibited. She watched as the crowds and religious leaders about the cross heaped insult and mocked her firstborn son. He was bleeding and he was emaciated as he hung there. All she could do was watch. We need to be careful here. Mary, the mother of Jesus, does not have some special title such as medieval superstition suggested. When Jesus died, he became his mother's savior as well. Just like our savior, Mary was no different. She also needed a savior. 
But as Jesus hung there, he fulfilled one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. He had the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders. But Jesus took time to think of and care for his mother. John Newton, as a young man, was brilliant. By the age of 10, he had memorized much of the New Testament, according to history books. His mother was, driving, was his driving force, but she died when he was only 10 years old. This was a heavy blow to the young boy, and because of this event, his faith wavered, and he gave up his belief in God. His father was a hard-nosed man and rough sea captain who owned a fleet of ships. His ships traveled between England and Africa, transporting slaves back and forth from Africa to the southern states. John was disillusioned and wandered away from Jesus. He did have a girlfriend from the early age and into his late teens. She told him, if we have a future together, you must change. He said to you, to her, I will, but not now. A few years later, he fell from his horse and was nearly killed, just missing a sharp iron spike. He came close to death, and as he stood up, he felt God speaking to him again. God was saying to him, you are, going, are you going to come back to me? He again said, I will, Lord, but not now. Next came an incident where he was to go boating with some friends. He was a little late and they left him behind. He became angry and stood on the shore cursing them. As he was cursing them, he looked up at the boat. They were way offshore by then and the boat suddenly capsized and both of his friends drowned. He stood there and the Lord again spoke to him saying, Life is serious, young man. When are you going to come back to me? He said, I will, Lord, but not now. In his early 20s, he went down to the docks in Old England, a very rough and tumble place that had bad characters and there was alcohol in the air. One night, he was confronted by a number of men and they hit, hit him on the head and knocked him out. When he awoke, he was way out at sea and he was somebody else's ship. He had been gang-pressed into labor for this captain. When he came to his senses, he went to the captain and said, Don't you know who I am? I am John Newton and my father owns a whole fleet of ships. How can you treat me as one of your sailors and force me to work for you? The captain said, if I had known you were Newton's son, I would have left you alone. He then gave a special cabin and privileges to the young lad, but the harmony did not last long. John started a campaign against the other sailors, against the captain in retaliation. The captain became furious with him, and when they got to Africa, he left him there, and he was given to an African queen who supplied the ships with African slaves. And John Newton became her slave. Then he was relegated to the bottom rung of the slaves. He was forced to stand by the wall where the slaves ate food and was not given food. But the slaves would throw food at him. He was given the worst possible jobs to do. Finally, John ran away into the jungle. He caught an illness, developed a high fever, and became blind temporarily. He recovered his sight finally, and the fever left him. Finally, his father found out the truth of what happened to his son and sent a ship to find him. They did not find him. They, they did find him on the back of the waterfront and put him on his father's ship. He had an overwhelming impression from God who was saying to him, John, you've made such a mess of your life. You almost died. When are you coming back to me? Incredibly, John answered again the Lord, I will. Lord, but not, not now. 
Shortly after he arrived back in England, his father died, and John inherited his huge fleet of ships. He became the most feared slave trader of the seas. He became very cruel. One night at sea, he was out at the wheel of his ship. Suddenly, it seemed like lightning had gone off in the sky. But it was not lightning in the sky. It was lightning in his head. He'd had a major stroke and was paralyzed on the right side. With great effort, he began to recover and to walk and talk again. The Lord impressed him again after this event. John, why don't you come back to me at last? John's response was, how can you possibly accept me? I'm a slave trader. I'm a mess. I'm a cruel man. He finally had a major recovery from the stroke, but he still had to drag his right foot awkwardly. And he quit the slave trade business and the sea. He finally said, yes, Lord. To the question, why don't you come back to me? He became, of all things, a minister. He became a preacher. In his pulpit, he had the verse of scripture looking up at him every time he stood in the pulpit. It was the words from the Old Testament. Remember that thou wast a slave in Egypt, and I, the Lord, redeemed thee. One night, John Newton was sitting by the warm fireplace, and he was reflecting on his life and what had happened to him and the many times when he had refused the Lord's invitation. This came to his mind. He began to write a poem, and the words went like this. Amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved such a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? From Matthew 27. The fourth saying from Christ is the most awesome and mysterious saying of all. Full of meaning, Matthew writes, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David predicted these words from Christ centuries before when he wrote in Psalms 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? On that cross, Jesus was punishing his only son, God was punishing his only son for all the sins of every person born from Adam onward till the end of time. This was as if Christ had committed all those sins. And he did it that he could forgive those who will accept Jesus as Savior. And he asks us, let me take your sins. I took care of it at Calvary. If we do not accept his offer, we die in our sins. The most amazing trait in the world is the fact that those who accept Jesus offer, offer of redemption as if they lived Christ's perfect life. Wonder of wonders, how can it be? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And profound words from Isaiah 53 tell us, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, oh yes, with his stripes we are healed. This plan of redemption for mankind was from eternity. God and Jesus planned to save you and me from this sin-darkened planet. In that terrible, awful, yet sacred hour, as Jesus hung there suffering from exhaustion, blood loss, painful agony, and asphyxiation, it was as if the Ancient of Days abandoned him, but not so. Not so. Suddenly the sun broke through the darkness, says Scripture. The true measure of Christ's sufferings, the physical pain and the crucifixion, dreadful as it was, was nothing compared to the perceived wrath of his Father against him because he bore our sins on him. He felt the the dreadful loneliness and abandonment at his Father's wrath. But the scripture tells us that the Son did break through, bringing hope and trust to Jesus, that his Father was accepting his sacrifice. And then there was that thief that said he would accept the invitation for the eternal kingdom. I thirst, I thirst. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. In his cry out, I thirst, we see the true humanity of Christ. He was God in human flesh, but also human. In his physical body, he experienced all the normal human limitations that we do. After hours of hanging in the hot sun, he experienced agonizing thirst. This moment was predicted centuries before in Psalm 69. For my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink, says David. From the one who had promised living water to all who would believe, this one now cried out, I thirst. And so the Savior who hung on that cross gave living water, eternal water, to all that believed on him, just as he did to the woman at the well. It is finished. John records this in John 19.30. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, It is finished. From a human standpoint, it appeared like he had wasted his life for nothing. He hung there looking wasted and pathetic, a victim, but not so. This was the greatest victory in the cosmic universe. Christ had fulfilled everything God's law demanded for sinners. Christ's atoning work was finished. Everything the ceremonial law foreshadowed had been accomplished. The sacrifice of all the millions of sacrificial lambs over the centuries of time pointed to this very moment. As the psalmist had written centuries before, mercy and justice have kissed each other at the cross. This is why so many human work of ours can never be added to what Jesus did at this moment. Paul said it best, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Luke 23, 46. Luke records this for all time, and after Jesus said these words, he bowed his head and he died. Jesus died as no man had ever died. On one hand, he died at the hands of evil men, religious leaders of his day, Acts 2, 23. By another, 
since it was his father who sent him there, as recorded in Isaiah 53.10. Yet in the final scene, or since, no one took his life. He gave it up willingly for those whom he loved, you and me. John 10, 17 and 18. The amazing thing is that in dying, Jesus was in control of everything. Here the creator of the planet and the universe was in sovereign control of this event. Everything had come to pass exactly as the scriptures predicted it would. He could have come down from the cross to save himself. But he did not. Just as the prophets of centuries before had written. Pilate, Herod, the Sanhedrin, the mocking crowd, all had played a part in this drama. Satan and all his evil angels, their doom was now sealed, and they will die in eternal death. But Christ in death had won the victory that he had and can have and give eternal life. Christ secured our redemption. It was the greatest victory of all time. Christ would make this emphatically clear three days later when he burst forth from the tomb in his resurrection. Can you with me today say the words that that hardened Roman centurion said at the foot of the cross? Truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew 27, 54. The Bible is clear. We all face judgment. We will either stand with all the atheists and the liars and the horrible dictators, the evil angels, and Satan himself as their general at the end of time. Or we will stand with the redeemed of all ages who choose to love God and his son Jesus Christ. We will be in the new Jerusalem looking out on those who refuse salvation. Then we will sit down with the redeemed of all the ages to eat from the tree of life. We are all invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a chair there with our name on it. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. From Revelation. And he saith unto me, Write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Revelation 19, 7-9. Will your chair be empty? I want to close with a few words that were written over a hundred years ago. Before the ransomed throng in the holy city, Jesus opens wide the pearly gates, and the nations that have kept the truth enter in. There they behold the paradise of God, the home of Adam and his, and his innocency. There they voice, richer than any music that ever fell on mortal ear, is heard saying, Your conflict is ended, says Jesus. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. As the ransomed ones are welcomed to the city of God, there rings out upon the air an exalted cry of adoration. The two Adams are about to meet. The Son of God is standing with outstretched arms to receive the Father of our race. The being whom he created, who sinned against his maker, and for whom sin marks the crucifixion, which is born on the Savior's form. As Adam discerns the prince of the cruel nails, he does not fall upon the bosom of the Lord. 
But in humiliation, he casts himself down at his feet, crying, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Tenderly, the Savior lifts him up and bids him look once again on the Eden home from which he was long ago taken away. Transported with joy, he beholds the trees that once were his delight, the very trees which fruit he himself had gathered in the days of his innocence and joy. His mind begins to grasp the reality of the scene. He comprehends that this is indeed Eden restored, as Revelation predicts. More lovely now than it was from when he was banished from it before. The cross of Christ will be the science and song of the redeemed through all eternity. In Christ glorified, they will behold Christ crucified. The mystery of the cross explains all other mysteries. And the light of the cross streams from Calvary to the whole world. But let's close with the Bible. Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage supper of the Lamb is come. And his wife, meaning the redeemed of all the ages, hath made herself ready. And to her, the redeemed, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints which is in reality the righteousness of Jesus that they have accepted. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Eternal Father, we're so thankful today that as our minds turn toward that heaven above, that is coming soon for those that love you. We see this through the veil of the cross. We see this through darkened eyes as we sometimes cannot understand how you could die for us. But Lord, we accept your mercy, we accept your grace, and we accept the fact that you give us redemption. Oh Lord, we're humbled beyond words. Thank you, Lord. Bless us in our walk to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.